So I must say I really loved the patient contact. The patient contact for me was and still remains the, the heart of what I was interested in. And, and I found that my main interest was really severe schizophrenia. Really people who have um, appalling lives that are just completely blighted by mental disorder for which we don't yet have effective cures. Um, and, and it's an international problem which has a significant global burden of disease. But it's also really invisible. It's invisible in the community, it's invisible to government funders, uh, it's, it's in some ways often shunned by the medical profession as somehow different. And, and I became really interested in opportunities to improve the health of this population. Hi everyone and welcome to our third SciPod episode. And today we're going to be exploring everything to do with forensic psychiatry. We're taking a bit of a break recently just because of exams, um, but we are back now and hopefully everyone passed and I hope everyone's looking forward to their holidays if they've got any. Um, and a huge thank you for all the support and all the feedback that we've been getting. It's been so rewarding to read. Um, and hopefully these episodes continue to provide a really interesting insight into psychiatry. If you're new here, feel free to check out the trailer to find out more about the mission. And also just a reminder to please leave some feedback if you have any via our forms or, or message us, because we'd love to hear from you and continue to improve. I'd like to begin by acknowledging and paying our respects to the traditional owners of the land we stand on. And we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Joining me for this interview is Nassal and AJ, who have both been part of our SISEM team this year. Yeah, my name is Nisal and I'm a final year medical student interested in psychiatry um, and really, really interested in forensic psychiatry just after finding more about you. So keen to, keen to chat. And I'm Ajita Singh and I'm also a final year medical student. Um, and I'm actually, I've been interested in forensic psychiatry for a very long time and that's because of crime shows specifically. <laughs> Thanks, guys. A special shout out goes out to the lead sponsor of our podcast, PIF, the Psychiatry Interest Forum, have helped us out. SciSem has received Australian government funding administered by the, the College of Psychiatrists under the Specialist Training Program. 100%, please go check out their amazing resources and work, especially if you're interested in, in psychiatry and pursuing that in the future. And before we go any further, like last time, I would like to just preface that in this episode, there will be again discussions of mental health and notably now regarding forensic psychiatry, and we'll be touching on mental health disorders such as schizophrenia. The description of this episode will have some more details, and we really encourage you to please reach out to support if, the, if you feel that you need it, and to only listen in if you feel comfortable and able to do so. So let's get into it. Today, we're going to be unpacking the world of forensic psychiatry, and yes, it is different to the movies, so tune in as we start to break down those misconceptions. Let's start the conversation and let's learn more about forensic psychiatry. Joining us today is a super inspiring special guest, and I'm so looking forward to having this chat. Um, today, we have Dr. Danny Sullivan joining us. Dr. Sullivan is a Melbourne and London trained forensic psychiatrist. He is currently the executive director of clinical services at Forensic Care. He holds master's degrees in bioethics, medical law and management, and also honorary academic appointments at Melbourne University and Swinburne University. So he has a wealth of experience in this area and he's so passionate about what he does. So thank you so much for being here with us, Danny. I'll hand over you, to you to talk us through a bit about yourself and your career to start us off. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I was a, a fairly... Uh ambivalent medical student actually and it wasn't until I did behavioral sciences in second year 
that I suddenly found a passion for um, psychiatry. And I suppose the reason for that was the fact that it drew in a whole lot of other interests. It didn't seem so purely medical. You could read sociology, anthropology, you could read Freud. Uh, I became quite interested in the sort of 1960s anti-psychiatry movement. It was just a really fascinating and engaging, um, I suppose, deviation from standard medical studies. Cut through to fifth year. Um, it was a six-year degree course back then. And in fifth year, we had a, a full term of psychiatry and we were placed at one of the old asylums, Larundel Hospital in Bandura. What that meant was that uh, it was a, a huge campus with a lot of green space, many people with chronic psychiatric disorders, some of whom had lived in the hospital for years, uh, a, few, a few units which, uh, which had higher turnover. But it was a really, um, I suppose, instructive learning experience for me because you spent a lot of time really just sitting with very mentally disordered people talking and obviously people with severe mental illnesses uh, can say some pretty crazy stuff. And it's really fascinating to try and make sense of, of what's happening both in the brain to produce that crazy stuff, but also to reflect upon the unusual lives that people have when they're affected by mental disorder. So I must say I really loved the patient contact. The patient contact for me was and still remains the, the heart of what I was interested in. And, and I found that my main interest was really severe schizophrenia, really people who have um, appalling lives that are just completely blighted by mental disorder for which we don't yet have effective cures. Um, and, and it's an international problem which has a significant global burden of disease. But it's also really invisible. It's invisible in the community. It's invisible to government funders. Uh, it's, it's in some ways often shunned by the medical profession as somehow different. And, and I became really interested in opportunities to improve the health of this population. As part of our uh, medical student work, uh, we had a two-week placement in forensic psychiatry in what was then Mont Park Hospital. And I still vividly remember the first patient that I saw. In fact, I saw him with Brett Sutton, the chief health officer. We sat in the interview together and the... Uh, the patient was a man who had been in, uh, he'd been in the emergency services and he had seriously injured and killed um, the parents of his wife on a background of, of pornography use and strange sexual fantasies. And he was very eager and enthusiastic to tell us about this. So, of course, I came away with a whole lot of questions. You know, what is the link between pornography and offending? Uh, what, what does it mean in a small country community when a person kills family members? And how does a family actually deal with that sort of tragedy happening in the family? What, what sense do you make of it going forward? It was probably then that I knew that uh, forensic psychiatry was going to be my career. Uh, I'd already started some voluntary work with the Mental Health Legal Centre, so I was doing um, paralegal work representing mental health patients in front of the Mental Health Review Board, as it was then. So again, that was a really interesting exercise in um, advocacy for people usually with severe mental disorders who were detained in, uh, in the large asylums of the day. We're talking the early 90s here. Once I knew that I wanted to do forensic psychiatry, it was fairly straightforward. I, I took a meandering course. I, I did a couple of master's degrees in subjects that interested me. So I studied some bioethics at Monash University with Peter Singer. Uh, I did uh, a thesis in that on um, involuntary commitment and autonomy theory. So deviated into philosophy. Uh, and I did a master's in health and medical law at the University of Melbourne, so a really great chance to, to think in depth about a range of contemporary legal topics that were really relevant to healthcare. And during that time, I, I worked a few um, jobs. I focused on neurology. I focused on emergency medicine um, in my resident jobs. 
Uh, I did a couple of non-accredited psychiatric jobs and found that I really loved it. I was pretty happy with that. And uh, as a result, I decided that I was going to go and train overseas. And I approached Paul Mullen, who was then the professor of forensic psychiatry, and I introduced myself and he was very welcoming and, in fact, went on to become a very significant mentor and um, supporter in my career. Uh, But as a result of that, uh, I moved overseas. I moved to London and uh, my girlfriend then, now wife, and I both studied. She was uh, a physician and we worked and, and lived in London and um, lived the, the penniless life of junior doctors. We uh, you know, had one-bedroom flats, spent a lot of evenings um, uh, cuddled up to the heater and uh, just studying for, for exams, but, uh, and it was about a one in four on call. But it was, a, you know, it was a great life, and, of course, we're living in London and holidaying in Europe on the weekends back in the day when we could travel. It was, it was a pretty good time to do um, psychiatry training, and I really valued, again, the experience of working overseas and of seeing different systems and... Um, again, you know, in, a, in an international city like London, you're working with a lot of trainees who have come from elsewhere. Uh, it was a very um, professionally and personally satisfying time in my life. And of course, you reflect upon the wonder of medicine in that you really do have the opportunity to travel. Uh, your your career is portable. And in fact, the more you do it, the, uh, the better the experience you bring to your future career. So anyone who says um, you must continue straight through on the treadmill and not climb off at any stage... Uh, ignore that. Life experience is valuable. Uh, working in different places and doing things that interest you are really important. And they're, um, you know, you can feed them all into your career. That's a word of advice from Uncle Dan. So cut back to uh, the early 2000s and I returned from London. Um, I did my final years of training at the Royal Melbourne um, and I was already heading towards uh, what what is called Forensic Care, the Victorian Institute of Forensic Mental Health. That's the statewide mental health provider for forensic services and uh, I did a senior registrar year there and then became a consultant and since then I've had the the joy of working in a range of different fields in forensic psychiatry which I'll go into Um, but I've I've now been with forensic care for 18 years which is a very long time to to stay with one employer but it just goes to show what a a rich variety of experiences you can have and how um, satisfying the job is. So that was my journey. Um, of our, our workforce at Forensic Care, the consultant psychiatrists, um, about half are overseas trained. Many um, we, we preferentially choose people who have forensic training from England. We have numbers of uh, people who have graduated from India, in particular from the uh, National Institute of Mental Health and Neurosciences in Bangalore, which is a very high-quality institution. Um, and we have, uh, we have doctors from a range of different countries. Uh, we have a lot of local trainees as well. Uh, but it's, you know, all of those things go to add to a, a diverse and rich workforce and the people that you work with bring a range of different interests and specialisations. Uh, so it's a really uh, good collegiate experience as well. Hmm. Wait, just to backtrack a little bit, did you say you did some paralegal like representation? of does that, Is that related to law in any way? or? That- yeah, look, uh, of course, forensic psychiatry overlaps with the law in quite a, quite a degree. You're often translating your mental health expertise into plain language for a legal audience. If you're giving expert evidence in court, if you're writing a report, um, if you're addressing um, impairment that might have arisen out of a person's employment, you often have to have some uh, understanding of and adeptness with and familiarity with the law. So... Um, Although I never necessarily wanted to be a lawyer, I was always very interested in the law. 
and um, and it's been very useful both to do postgraduate studies in that, but also to have had some experience on the other side representing patients. And the Mental Health Legal Centre has a very um, patient-centred focus. Uh, I think they were initially reluctant to take me on as a volunteer because they saw me as part of the, the medical establishment. And, um, and I suppose they were fairly critical of, of the medical establishment because they so fiercely advocated for the rights of patients. Uh, but having said that, you know, the, the role of advocacy um, often involves using the patient's own words rather than substituting your own. So in that sense, um, you know, it, it goes towards what we call supported decision-making, which is much more the paradigm now than uh, substituted decision-making. And that's a really important distinction. So I suppose from that I had the experience of having to learn to, to swallow my words and instead reflect on the patient's wishes. So let me give you an example. Um, I represented a woman who was detained. She had a diagnosis of chronic schizophrenia. Uh, she didn't believe she had a diagnosis of chronic schizophrenia. What she believed was that uh, at night Elvis Presley came to her in bed and they had fabulous sex. And as a result, uh, she said her husband was very jealous and that was why he had had her locked up in hospital. And... Uh, when, when I sort of put it to her that perhaps the tribunal might not necessarily believe this account and it might not be worthwhile pursuing this course of action, she was steadfast in telling me that what she wanted was the tribunal to understand her point of view. And so that's what I put to them. I, I put to them that uh, her explanation for why she was here was, was the following. And as a result, the detention was upheld, so she stayed in hospital. But she was happy. She was happy that she'd been heard. Um, she was satisfied. She gave me a cigar uh, she came outside and said, smoke a cigar with me. Thank you for, uh, you know, explaining that to the tribunal. And, uh, you know, she would have carried on with her life. But it, it taught me a valuable lesson because uh, obviously it was a um, it was a doomed legal strategy, um, but it was important for her not to have someone else speak on her behalf mm. but rather to, to have her voice clearly heard. I learned a lot from that. Mm. How much would you say, because you have been, the, been in the forensic psychiatry um, specialty for a very long time now, how would you say it's changed from the 90s till now in the tw- 2020s? Oh, there have been really substantial shifts in the mental health system and, and this is, of course, of great importance to medical students considering a career in psychiatry. So when, when I was a medical student, uh, mental health was... There had been a shift to providing more mental health in the community, so there were many more community mental health centres, but the mainstay remained these big asylums which were dotted around the sort of uh, outer suburbs of Melbourne. Um, At at their peak, many of those would have held more than 1,000 patients. Some patients would have stayed there for their entire lives. Um, There were good and bad things about asylums. You know, the bad things, there were no doubt some awful practices that happened, human rights abuses. Um, They were invisible to the community and they reflected the stigma of mental disorder. But on the other hand, they were also places that were, I suppose, quite permissive of the um, of the, the, the lives of people with mental disorders. You know, it's um, behaviour which otherwise would come to the attention of police or which would lead to people being shunned um, can take place in a, in a sort of a large uh, greenfield site in which, you know, the community is not necessarily present. Of course, those those estates are all very expensive real estate and many have now been sold off and redeveloped. Uh, and in the 1990s, the move was to mainstream psychiatry and to move units to be co-located with general hospitals. And the intention, of course, was to, to place mental health alongside the rest of physical illness as a, as a part of a medical specialty. But as we know, that, that doesn't necessarily reduce stigma. Um, they're often still separate parts of the hospital and they're not seen as, as necessarily aligned 
What it does mean, though, is that many people with mental disorders probably got better quality physical health care uh, and much of psychiatry, I suppose, became a little more integrated with, with medicine. In terms of forensic psychiatry, in the 1990s, some people were detained at the at J Ward in Ararat, the Hospital for the Criminally Insane, which uh, you can still visit for a historical tour. It's an old bluestone building from the, the 19th century. And in the early 1990s, uh, prisoners there were slopping out. That means that they had bedpans in their room. There were no toilets or plumbing. And in the morning, you would empty your bedpan. So that's pretty um, pretty primitive, really, when you think about it, in the 1990s. Uh, most people by then at least had indoor toilets in their houses. But that, to me, represents, you know, the um, the the very stigmatising and unpleasant ways in which the criminally insane, as they were then called, were represented. In the late 1990s, the um, insanity defence was replaced by a mental impairment defence. So it used to be that people were detained at the governor's pleasure. And what that mean was what that meant was that for people to be released from um, their detention, it had to be done by the government. And of course, that's not a very popular political act. So many people were detained, you know, for the duration of their natural life. Mental impairment as a defence uh, came in in 1999. And the legislation meant that the decisions were then made by the courts, by judges who aren't elected and who are appointed and who um, don't have to answer to electors and therefore don't have to be popular. They simply have to be right. And I think that's a far more um, humane and sensible approach. The other thing that happened was that in the late 1990s, um, Paul Mullen and, uh, and a group of uh, others saw the need for a, a modern and contemporary establishment. And so the Thomas Embling Hospital was uh, established in Fairfield and that opened in 2000. And as a result, uh, we now have a, a, you know, a much better facility, although the problem remained that the planning for the number of beds was insufficient. So beds have been very tight for a long time. I suppose the other, the other change is that uh, um, increasingly the, the Royal Commission for Victoria's Mental Health System, which... Um, made its findings in March this year, reflected on the effects of chronic underfunding over many years for mental health services and in particular for forensic services. The government, which had acknowledged this, uh, this problem with the mental health system, stated that it would fund all of the recommendations and as a result, uh, a significant number of recommendations will result in billions of dollars of funding flowing to mental health. So for medical students wanting a career, um, you are beautifully poised um, to come out of your university to enter training and to be ready to move into a huge range of interesting jobs which will be arriving in the next five to ten years. And everyone in the mental health system is completely anxious about how we will find the workforce to populate the new mental health system which will develop and which will be an exciting and, and uh, I think bright and vibrant thing. So certainly um, if you are interested in a career in psychiatry, you can be very confident that not only will there be jobs for you, but there'll also be a range of jobs and you'll be in the position of being able to select interesting jobs. That's an important thing to know when you're planning your career. The uh, What it means for us is that we will have um, an increased number of beds. Uh, we will, we're already the state's largest single uh, mental health service. Uh, we will uh, end up with around 250 beds uh, in the end. And those beds cover both people who are found mentally impaired uh, or unfit to be tried, so they're, they're deemed not criminally responsible for their actions and they're detained really until they can be released safely into the community. Uh, that provides services for prisoners, so all mental health services which are rendered compulsorily for prisoners, which aren't taken voluntarily, um, have to be done in 
a gazetted mental health hospital like the Thomas Embling Hospital. And finally, we haven't had the capacity for some years, but we will also be able to take an increased number of civil patients, that is patients from general mental health systems who are, whose behaviour is too aggressive or too dangerous to be managed in the general mental health system or who require a longer length of stay in conditions of security. As well as that, um, there will be very significant changes flowing from the Royal Commission, uh, a youth stream in prison. So prisoners aged 18 to 25 will now have special pathways reflecting their particular developmental needs and hopefully ensuring that when they return to the community, um, they'll be able to, you know, um, actually have the opportunities which young people should have, but which sometimes mental disorder deprives people of. And that's very much in line with the sort of thinking that Patrick McGorry has developed at Origin over the last 30, 30 or more years, uh, really reflecting upon the necessity of intervening early for mental disorder, intervening early in even in primary school and secondary school to keep people in education, to keep them in employment, to keep them linked to their communities and families. So I suppose that, that just brings me back to the notion that mental health is not just about treating individual patients with medication, with talking therapies, but it's also reflecting on how you uh, return them to meaningful lives in the community return them to meaningful lives through ensuring that they have um, employment. So we know that less than a quarter of all people with chronic mental illness have any form of employment. That's pretty different from the unemployment rate across the population. Uh, we know that uh, most of them, if they're asked to name friends, will name carers or will name professionals rather than friends, so they're socially isolated. And if you think about the population that you went to secondary school with you as medical students, you know, uh, one in a hundred of those people statistically will develop schizophrenia um, and their trajectory will differ very markedly from yours just through, uh, you know, the vagaries of genetics, fate and other other conditions that you can't predict and that happen through no fault of some someone's. So all of, all of those messages, I suppose, make mental uh, disorder a really important priority for the community. The other thing to reflect on is that uh, there's, a, there's a huge burden of what we call high prevalence disorders, so depression, anxiety, eating disorders, a range of different conditions which um, affect people who still function in the community but whose functioning is day-to-day -day severely impaired by, by mental health problems. Uh, and there's a real urgency to, to give these people the opportunities that they otherwise will miss out on because mental disorder will deprive them of that. If you think about chronic illnesses that have received you know, a range of great treatments, uh, diabetes and hypertension, think about heart disease and treatments for cancer. You know, there's, there's a range of developments, in, including targeted therapies and genetic modifications. Um, there's, there's some really joined up systems which provide great opportunity for people when they develop these conditions to receive excellent top-class treatment. But for mental disorder, that's still really lagging, and this is a really great opportunity to reconstruct a mental health system. Uh, and for, for people who will be working in the next five to ten years in the field, it's just going to really explode with uh, with a lot of, I think, new and interesting programs. Some of those programs won't work. Um, some of them will, but if they're effective, um, you know, what we might see is an appreciable reduction in suicide rates, um, an improvement in employment and community uh, linkage for people with severe mental illness, uh, greater opportunities for people to be managed in the community rather than managed as inpatients, um, if, if forensic mental health services are, are particularly effective, we may even see reductions in crime. So there's there's a lot of really good opportunities there. It's really good to hear that there's been so many, I guess, advancements um, from a from a like I guess 
um, legal standpoint and in terms of uh, mental health and specifically around forensic psychiatry. Um, I wanted to explore, you mentioned before in terms of the mental health um, impairment defence. Do you have a role in making those assessments and um, standing in court and providing testimony? Is that, does that come part of your job? Yeah, absolutely. So um, perhaps, perhaps one way of considering this and to talk about the range of forensic mental health services is to consider um, what, what we offer from the, from the point of view of a patient. So let's say you're a person living in the community with a severe mental illness. You've got schizophrenia. Uh, you smoke a bit of cannabis. Um, you live in a boarding house somewhere because you're, uh, you spend more of your money on cigarettes. So um, the main cause of death of people with schizophrenia is, is cardiovascular mortality related to smoking or cancer. Um, mortality is 20 years younger than the rest of the population, even in a developed country like Australia. Um, and, of course, we know that uh, smoking rates have receded to about 11% in the general population, um, but we have 85% of people with schizophrenia smoking. So, again, there's some interesting neurobiological reasons for that. There's some reasons, abnormalities of the dopamine reward system, abnormalities of salience, um, the self-medication hypothesis that people use nicotine to diminish the effects of antipsychotic medications. Um, just, just a reflection on the fact that in, in mental health, you're also reflecting on the physical health of your patients. Anyway, you're living in your boarding house. Uh, one night, because your paranoid beliefs uh, influence your thinking, you take a knife and you stab someone um, and they're seriously injured. They go to hospital, you're arrested. You're taken into custody by the police. Um, you're remanded in custody, you go to prison and there you're assessed by a mental health nurse. And depending on the, the level of your need, you'll be triaged into different categories of, of need and you'll be seen by a forensic psychiatrist shortly thereafter in the prison system, soon after your reception, and some treatment planning will occur. We'll try and get you back onto your medication. You may not want to take that medication because one of the cardinal features of schizophrenia is a loss of insight. You know, really fascinating thing, insight. How is it that um, a disorder can be accompanied by a complete loss of reflection of of the unreality of your experiences and they can become something that you believe fervently to be true. One of the unanswered questions, but, a, but an interesting one nevertheless. Because you can't be treated compulsorily in prison, and that's a good thing because prisons are already um, harsh places, you don't need any further um, impost upon your liberties, uh, you will be transferred under the Mental Health Act, so certified under the Mental Health Act and transferred to Thomas Emling Hospital and you'll be admitted to a unit there staffed by a full multidisciplinary team. So one of the, the joys of our work is that we get to work with a whole range of others. We get to work with lots of psychologists, specialised mental health nurses, occupational therapists, uh, social workers. We have music therapists and art therapists. There's, there's a really large range of specialties. And I reflected that, you know, during my time in, uh, in, uh, as, a, as an undergraduate medical student, uh, I think I had one hour with an occupational therapist to find out what an occupational therapist does. And, and it was very much focused upon physical health care, not mental health care. So our, our specialised occupational therapists do some amazing things. They, you know, use techniques to reduce distress through sensory modulation. Um, they do falls risk assessments. They um, provide a range of um, activities that provide meaningful occupation for people. They manage to link uh, people with severe mental illness into employment opportunities and they discuss with them the difficulties of something like, you know, do I tell my employer um, that I spent time detained at Thomas Emily Hospital? Really complicated tasks. Anyway, you're treated for your mental illness. Um, you're treated with some antipsychotics, possibly some other medications. 
you'll have some investigations. You know, there'll be a diagnostic process to rule out unusual disorders. Uh, we'll do a personality assessment in some cases because there's um, likely to be comorbid personality disorder. We'll think about your substance use treatment needs because that's going to lead to relapse or um, increase your risk of reoffending. And uh, and once you're you're suitably better, you'll be returned to to prison. And at some stage, you'll come up for trial. And when you come for trial, um, by that time, you'll have a defence lawyer. Um, the defence lawyer might have thought about the possibility of mental impairment and they will have employed a forensic psychiatrist to write a report for the court because evidence about mental disorder has to be put before the court by a specialist. You know, the, the lawyer can't simply say, Your Honour, my client's got schizophrenia. Um, they can't simply make that assertion. It has to be based upon some proper expert evidence. Yeah. And, uh, again, that's a really interesting experience. The... Uh, to give expert evidence, obviously you're giving sworn evidence. Um, your job is to translate technical terms into uh, terms understandable by, you know, educated lay people, uh, and to provide it in a way that enables legal interpretation of particular terminology. So, is schizophrenia a disease of the mind? Um, did it meet a particular threshold test that the person uh, couldn't reason about the wrongfulness of their conduct? Um, that's that's the. Um, it's a really challenging part. It relies on a little bit of professional yeah. writing. Um, it, it's good if you can speak on your feet. Um, it can be quite confronting to be sitting in a courtroom being cross-examined by good quality uh, lawyers. Um, but also the courts very much value the fact that they've got objective and impartial evidence. Forensic Care provides the prosecution reports. Um, and obviously our psychiatrists will also provide reports um, working in their private capacity for the defence. When it goes to court, um, the decision's made either by a judge or a jury um, based on the legal test. And if you're found to be mentally impaired, which means that at the time of the offence you, you were severely affected by mental illness, or if you're found to be unfit to be tried, which means that at the time you go to trial, uh, you, you really can't participate meaningfully in the, the court process because of mental disorder, then um, the court determines that you will be subject to a supervision order. And a supervision order means... You can either be detained uh, on a custodial supervision order in Thomas Emling Hospital or on a non-custodial supervision order where you're looked after by an area mental health service, um, but the court has you on an order which you know provides restrictions on what you can do and can't do. You might not, not be allowed to drink alcohol, leave the state of Victoria, you must take your medication, and at any time if you breach that order, you can be um, pulled back into, into hospital. But eventually, if, uh, if things go well and your illness is controlled and often long-term treatment with antipsychotic medication and abstinence from substance use and stability in life and support to, to get your life together means that you can actually you know, develop a, a better state of mental health than you would have otherwise had if you were living in that boarding house, smoking your tobacco, smoking your cannabis and uh, you know, taking your medication when you had the money to afford it. And then if things go well, you can come off that order if it's considered that you can be returned safely to the community. That's the test, is that you can't pose um, some sort of risk to the community which can't be managed. So forensic psychiatrists then are working, um, they're giving evidence in court, they're providing assessment, they're providing treatment, um, but there are other places as well, so as well as the prison clinics, um, the community service that looks after people in the community, forensic psychiatrists are working there in private practice, Forensic psychiatrists will provide um, assessments for people who have suffered psychological injuries at work, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder or depression from being bullied or 
whole range of mental health problems that can arise out of employment. Um, they can be providing assessments for, for a range of different bodies, um, providing assessments on, on uh, people who have mental disorder uh, in, in any sort of legal forum where expertise is required to translate technical knowledge into legal terms. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. That's exactly what I was after, just finding out more about, um, I guess, how that system and that process works. Um, I think it was a little bit of backtrack, but also on the stigma that you were talking about before. I just wanted to, it's a bit of a broad question, but I wanted to get your thoughts on how society views like the mental health impairment defence and whether you think, I think, I guess the community can fully understand um, the mental health defence and that when people don't have capacity, they don't have that um, insight that you mentioned, whether like we can totally understand that. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think you're right. It's a very challenging, uh, it's a very challenging notion that people should be uh, exculpated because they're not seen as criminally responsible. Uh, for a layperson, and particularly for a layperson affected by violent crime, that just seems wrong. It seems that the person is not being held accountable, is not being punished, um, and that the outcome doesn't seem satisfactory. Uh, and what we have to do in, in our field is reassure people, firstly, that uh, you know that, that punishment is not appropriate for people with a severe mental illness who are, you know, who there but for the grace of God, anyone could could have that mental illness. It's you know just a failure of circumstances. Um, and secondly, we have to reassure them that uh, what they're getting is good quality treatment, which will address the risk. And finally, um, we have to persuade them that when they return to the community, the rates of reoffending are really low. So, one of the other things we do is research, and we've done research on the cohort of people that have been through um, through Thomas Emling Hospital, uh, and all of the people released into the community, the rates of reoffending are, are very, very low, um, and the rates of serious reoffending are, are almost infinitesimal. Um, and obviously any of those re-offences is, is significant. But when you compare that to the population who are detained for much longer often in prison and then return to the community, we know that re-offending rates are often more than 50%. So we know that prison prison serves the purpose of punishment. It serves the purpose of incapacitation by removing people from the population for a predetermined period of time. But what it doesn't do is prevent necessarily further offending. Um, but having said that, it, it is clear that there is um, there's often community outrage that people somehow are getting a um, an easy run. Um, our, our patients would tell you otherwise. Our patients would say that the deprivation of liberty they have from being in hospital, you know, the deprivation of freedom to do what they want, uh, is very significant. But they'll also talk about the fact that once they get better, they really reflect upon um, what it's like to be in a in a better state of mental health. Um, to have some hope for the future, whereas previously they realised that they were, um, you know, severely afflicted by mental illness, very unhappy and often just, you know, using substances. Um, our, our patients talk about this very, very eloquently uh, and are able to really communicate that. So hopefully, you know, people will still think what they think, but our job is to really make sure that uh, that we um, put, put our money where our mouth is and, and that our actions in, in treating people effectively and returning to the community safely work. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, we were talking about that reoffending. I think that was really important because um, it's sort of hard to, I guess, fully understand how, how much support we can provide if, if that defence goes through and we can provide that um, mental health support to prevent the reoffending. So it's really, really important. Um, so thank you for for pointing that out. Um, you mentioned research. So I wanted to talk to you a bit about your research that you've done. You've done quite a lot. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the research you've done and also 
as medical students, whether there are any opportunities to get involved in research to further involve ourselves in the field. Sure. Look, um, mental health research is often very challenging. There's a, there's a range of different um, opportunities. Um, so there's, uh, and I, I won't speak just about forensic mental health, I'll just talk about mental health in yeah. general. Uh, I suppose the, the first strand of research is neurosciences research, either basic neurosciences uh, or applied neurosciences, and that can include anything from um, neuroimaging, um, neurotransmitter assays, uh, but, but essentially, you know, trying to drill down further to find causes, explanations and putative treatments for, um, you know, what is really some of the last bastions of, uh, of, you know, unknown diseases. We really can't say yet what it is that causes something like schizophrenia despite its profound impact. We know that there are um, genetic associations. We can, we can point to specific congenital syndromes with markedly increased rates of schizophrenia. We can talk about um, neuroimaging abnormalities, but we couldn't do a brain scan at 12 and say this person will get schizophrenia and that one won't. Although retrospectively, we could look at them and say, yeah, well, that that brain scan in fact shows abnormalities uh, which are consistent with the subsequent development of a psychotic illness. Um, There is research that focuses upon particularly epidemiology, looking at linkages with a range of uh, not just genetic uh, causes, but also other disorders um, and that's you know particularly interesting in trying to work out the associations between substance use and schizophrenia there's a range of different um, service um, and intervention based research where we try to develop effective treatments and then determine which of those is more likely to be effective going forward and methodologically that can be very challenging when you're doing something like uh, a psychological treatment you need to manualize your treatment and then work out a, a treatment paradigm as, as blinded as possible in order to ensure that you're measuring the real effect of the treatment as opposed to some of the other variables that could confound the research. Um, there's particular challenges in doing research on mental health and correctional populations. Um, some of those relate to the position of vulnerability of potential participants. So doing research in prisons in particular is um, is quite Um, complex and fraught, Um, but also you have to sort of reflect upon uh, much research which is just done on very pure populations of non-substance using, you know, adult male um, patients who who really just don't represent real-life effectiveness for treatments. Uh, And you also have to reflect upon the capacity of patients to be involved in in, um, research when they have significant mental disorder. So... um, Research probably lags in mental health compared to many other fields, uh, but there are sort of opportunities. Um, As medical students, most of those opportunities are going to be in either little nested cohort analyses or um, in research of existing data sets. Um, And that's because the the actual uh, recruitment of a cohort with sufficient number to sort of do accurate research is is pretty complex in mental health. Um, you'll be aware that funding of uh, research in Australia has, has been abysmal for years, um, that, that a very small number of um, NHMRC research grants actually is successful in gaining funding. So, you know, really the way to do it is to be linked to an established research group that, that has credential um, and to look for opportunities that fit into the, the already busy and stretched lives of medical students trying to cram all of your learning into, into four years of hard work. Exactly, yeah. Okay. So um, as I was saying, my question was regarding the psychiatry training program, which has got the scholarly project on it as well. Um, and from my understanding, within that scholarly project, we have to publish a um, 
a substantive research article. Um, and so as a medical student, do you think as a, if I want to get into the psychiatry training program when I am a junior doctor, should I be starting on that scholarly project beforehand or should I do it while I'm in the psychiatry training program? What are your thoughts on it? Uh, the, the answer is um, is do things in the order you want. We certainly see lots of people trying to uh, trying to do everything at once and becoming quite overloaded. And medical students are usually highly capable and you know obviously top of their class. But um, but you can still bite off a bit too much, and you can uh, you can miss some of the other opportunities in just becoming a good rounded person. So my advice for someone wishing to enter psychiatry would be as follows: um, finish your medical degree, um, enjoy your uh, your um, residency and enjoy your, your hospital years, you know, get some skills, choose the subjects that you enjoy. Um, the, I always think the main rule is um, is to work with patients that you enjoy working with. If you work with patients you enjoy, you will enjoy the job. Uh, the rest of it, the rest of it is, is almost secondary to that. Once you enter the, the training scheme, um, and that's often in third year or beyond, um, again, uh, you don't necessarily need to hurry. If you want to get some life experience along the way, that's not going to hold you back. Um, as I said, I, I do think that there will be a plethora of um, of jobs in psychiatry going forward. The training scheme through the College of Psychiatrists is not specifically time limited, but rather relies upon the completion of a range of tasks. So some people will, will skate through in you know three, four, five years. Other people will take longer to get through, um, but that's okay. Um, the scholarly project is one of the tasks. Uh, you can sometimes get credit for having already completed and published um, a related um, paper, but but many will actually find that they'll be able to develop a project quite effectively within the health service that they're training in. Uh, we certainly find a range of opportunities, often for um, systematic reviews and meta-analyses, um, sometimes for nested studies with existing data sets, and they're all manageable within uh, within a caseload. Sometimes as well, if people are doing postgraduate studies, if they're doing another degree like a master's in mental health or a master's of psychological medicine or one of the um, forensic mental health specialist degrees, um, they will find a, a, an essay topic which enables them to also use that for their scholarly project. Uh, so, so I don't think there's any great hurry with that. You'll find plenty of opportunity. Most of the training schemes... Um, uh, work in a, in a mental health system which has a range of different jobs. So you'll typically work in inpatient and outpatient jobs. You'll work with acute patients and rehabilitation patients. There's a range of specialist units that include anything from perinatal psychiatry, eating disorders. Um, there's some mandatory rotations in child and adolescent. Um, people have opportunities for consultation liaison psychiatry working in general hospitals. Uh, there's, there's a really a broad range in terms of forensic mental health, we have firstly um, people we recruit directly who come to work for us sometimes as a break in their training. They just come and work for a couple of years as a registrar, often from overseas, um, and they've often worked in mental health. But, uh, you know, in the good old days, they came over here to, to live and work in Australia and to see the, see the country and have a good time. Um, that's that's a pipeline which is currently a little drier than it used to be. The... Um, the second thing is we have people rotating through as part of their standard rotation. So we have links to all of the established training schemes, which means that often in third and fourth year of training, we'll get registrars coming to us for three to six months. Um, and again, that's that's an amazing opportunity to go and work in, say, a prison for, for six months' time for people who have never been to prison, you know, to, to 
go there every day for your job and to go in and see patients in an outpatient clinic or in a in a unit setting, um, and then to come home and carry on your normal life. I think it's a really um, important um, experience to have as a as a um, as a trainee to reflect on what it's like to be in prison because you know there's a substantial proportion of the population is incarcerated and uh, many of your patients will have had contact with the justice system and the best understanding you'll get is actually by working there better better than actually offending and going there for some real life experience um, finally we then employ people as advanced trainees and they do it usually two years or more with us uh, rotating through a range of different experiences uh, in order to be prepared to be a um, a consultant psychiatrist and those experiences include uh, managing patients in hospital and community settings um, assessing and treating patients in prison settings um, a range of specialized community clinics um, that can include um, terrorism threat assessment um, specialist clinics that work with uh, people with intellectual disability and offending issues um, treatment of people with stalking fire setting and sexual offending so really a, an extensive range of um, opportunities to work with patients, but also acquiring skills along the way, um, learning how to use structured risk assessment tools and how to do personality assessments, um, in some cases doing some research, uh, learning how to give evidence. So as an example, we, we run a training scheme in conjunction with Victoria Legal Aid. Uh, we give our, our, uh, our registrars a, an anonymised vignette of a real patient uh, they learn up on it and then they go to court and they're examined by barristers from Victoria Legal Aid and public defenders um, in, in one of the sort of august courtrooms. The last one was in the Supreme Court in Court 11. Uh, so you get to stand up in the witness in the witness dock and, uh, and give evidence, you know, which can be pretty confronting, being examined by a real-life lawyer. But it's, it's something that you will do in the future and so you need to develop some of the skills along the way to manage that. Wait, so I'm just a bit more interested in the actual forensic things you do. So if you wanted to get people excited about forensic psychiatry, like medical students and maybe residents or registrars, um, just give us a bit more detail about what kind of, what's the usual population of patients you see? Like what kind of backgrounds do they come from? What kind of mental disorders do you see, you know, recurring? And what kind of common management treatment pathways do we usually see? Yeah, good question. Um Okay, normally by the time people come to forensic mental health, they've already got some experience, although as from next year, we'll be employing junior medical officers, so people in their second and third years of um, post-university training. What we expect, firstly, is uh, is that our registrars will go to work, usually in, a, in an inpatient setting or a prison setting. Um, they'll have a handover in the morning to hear about the patients that they'll be looking after. Um, that handover occurs alongside other staff, so um, it's really important. I can't emphasise enough how much you work as a part of a team and how different people bring different skills and perspectives to bear on the patient. Um, the, the patients that we're assessing, um, they cover the, the whole lifespan, so there's certainly there's uh, youth forensic mental health services in Victoria which are linked to us but not run by us, uh, and they provide services in youth justice centres and to people who are in contact with the youth justice system. Some of those people graduate and become adult offenders. Um, so we're dealing with a population, firstly, who have been in trouble with the law or who have behaviours that will lead them to be in trouble with the law, and often that's for violence, but it can be for a range of other uh, issues. Uh, the population we deal with is um, culturally diverse. 
Uh, and so we often, you know, have to use interpreters or or reflect upon the life experience of, of people. The, the question in psychiatry, you know, simply put is, uh, why did this person at this time develop this condition or do this behaviour? So we have to reflect upon trauma histories and adverse childhood experiences. We have to think about family and systems issues that impact upon the person. So it's, you know, it's a very holistic look at a person. It gives you the satisfaction of, I suppose, being able to really try and walk in someone's shoes Although, as, uh, as someone once said, if you walk a mile in someone's shoes, you're a mile away and you've got their shoes. What this means really in terms of assessing patients, though, is that you have a lot of time to reflect upon how it is that a person um, has a particular trajectory. You need to think about their personality and how you assess it. You need to think about uh, clarifying the diagnosis so that you can ensure that the treatment is appropriately tailored. So that involves exploring the phenomenology or the, uh, the particular symptoms that they present with. Uh, in, in forensic systems, you must always be alive to the possibility of malingering, that people are faking or embellishing their illness to get a particular outcome. So um, you'll often find people who present with pretty unusual symptoms and you need to work out, is this just an unusual variant of a common disorder or is there something else that I should be aware, aware of? In terms of treatment planning, we use a biopsychosocial model. So many of our treatments, particularly for severe mental illness, are, are medications. Um, in some cases, there are other biological treatments that are now used, like um, transcranial magnetic stimulation or electroconvulsive therapy, which is still used. Uh, the need to provide a, um, investigations and to ensure the physical health of patients is always a part of it. So when I say holistic, you know, you're really thinking about everything from um, is there an opportunity here for me to screen for hepatitis C in a population at risk and to, to provide treatment now that that's available? Um, how can I impart preventive health messages about smoking, gambling and other substance use? Uh, you obviously become very adept at understanding substance use and, you know, speaking a bit of street jargon and, uh, you know, being able to communicate with people who perhaps have very different experiences from you about what their life is like. That's the other aspect, of course, is that, you know, it's... Um, you're not a computer. Um, you, you have to be really quite keenly tuned into the the communication dynamics and the interpersonal aspects of how you how you communicate with someone, and that that can be challenging as well. You've got to build a relationship and a rapport. You've got to use your interpersonal skills to be able to motivate people or persuade people or prevent present them with really good evidence to to suggest they should follow your course of action. Um, and you're also, you know, you're you're seeking to collaborate with them the best. The best treatment is going to be something that you both agree on. Um, for that reason, working in prisons is particularly useful because not being able to treat people compulsorily means that you have to negotiate. You need to develop your um, interpersonal skills sufficiently that you can persuade people um, that, that you've got some really good ideas that might help them to have a better life. Um, finally, you've, you've got to monitor the effects of your treatment and uh, you, know, you, you might be using objective rating scales to measure that. Uh, you need to sort of think carefully about um, prognosis and how, how long a person's going to need to take treatment for. Uh, you need to address any side effects that arise. And of course, many of our mental health treatments have very profound metabolic or neuromuscular complications. So we need to be really cautious of that. So treatment planning, you know, involves, um, you know, the judicious application of an increasing range of different agencies. Psychological therapies, you can have specific training in a range of different evidence-based psychological therapies which can be applied by you or by other people. Um, but even if you don't have training in them, you still need to know when to apply them or when to refer for them. 
And then finally, the treatment planning will also involve thinking about how a person returns to a meaningful life and, and that can involve a range of other um, linkages to agencies or organisations, whether it's through the National Disability Insurance, Insurance Scheme or through community-based agencies that support people. So the assessment and treatment as a registrar is, um, you know, it, it gives you a really good in-depth opportunity to reflect upon patients. Uh, one of the nice things about forensic is the caseload is a little less than in um, perhaps a very busy, acute public service. So you actually do have enough time not just to spend with the patient but to go back and spend more time. Uh, for instance, our registrars working in the women's prison are dealing with a population who um, are profoundly disadvantaged, huge trauma histories and histories of abuse. Many people have grown up in out-of-home care or with families that, you know, quite frankly, uh, you know, have not parented uh, effectively and have, have caused damage to the children. Um, their relationship histories are awful. Uh, their health status is often parlous. Many will have comorbid substance use. Um, they'll be victims of family violence. Um, in many cases, they'll have cognitive impairments, intellectual disabilities or developmental disabilities, and they'll have personality disorders as well as mental illness. So unravelling all that, providing effective treatments and, and planning is, is really profound. And if you're working in the women's prison as a registrar, what that gives you is the chance to follow up people over a period of time. Normally, if you see a person with a severe personality disorder, um, it's fleeting crisis-based contact and you don't have any sort of longitudinal picture. But when you're looking after someone in a prison setting and they're free of substance use, what you actually get to, to observe and to interact with is the sort of fluctuation over time. And, and as I said, it really gives you a chance to reflect on what it must be like to have a, this life or to, to walk in someone else's shoes. Um, that, that's quite a profound honour. Uh, one of the things about forensic psychiatry is that you really do have a great opportunity to um, explore in depth some of the more perverse or weird or wonderful aspects of a person's life. Um, think about it and try and make sense of it. Sometimes communicate that to a court um, and then move on. Yeah, just on that point. So I think like that's really powerful to have the opportunity to do that and work with patients who have obviously been through so much. But I wanted to get your thoughts on how as a psychiatrist, that affects your own mental health and I guess how you go about coping when you see so many things and you mentioned the trauma and everything that th those patients will experience, how do you go about coping with your own mental health and preserve that sense of empathy, I guess? Yeah, a really good point. So self-preservation is a really important part of it and um, one, one of the things about um, psychiatry is that it's a broad church and if you start psychiatry training, you do have an opportunity to, to select as I said, the population you most enjoy working with and feel comfortable with. So I know, for instance, that um, that if I were working in a in a private practice dealing with people with mood disorders and, you know, marital disharmony, um, I, I myself would be despondent. I'd, I'd really, I don't think I'd particularly enjoy that form of work. I really do prefer the, um, uh, the pointy end of, you know, chronic schizophrenia and, um, you know, very complex personality disorders. Uh, so the, the first thing about self-preservation, of course, is uh, is choosing the population that you feel comfortable with, and and you can't necessarily predict that. Some people find that that some populations they, they really just get under their skin and they can't sleep and they uh, they're really distressed and disturbed by it, or they they over-identify. That that's obviously not the population you need to work with. But you do learn some measures for well-being. We really reflect upon the need for work-life balance. You've got to be able to sort of leave your work at work and not uh, not dwell on things too much. Um, 
because in forensic psychiatry you can be exposed to some pretty horrific behaviour and some, uh, you know, shocking accounts of violence, um, you need to, to somehow compartmentalise that or have ways of coping with it. But it's fair to say that, that at various times there will always be patients that disturb and distress you and you just need to have mechanisms to recognise that. So we use reflective practice. Uh, many people will use mindfulness techniques or, um, you know, have hobbies or interests which are completely separate from this and enable them to, to have a separate healthy mind space. Uh, but in general, I think you do develop ways that you can be compassionate um, and you can assist people but without taking their own problems on board. Uh, if anyone's read Samuel Shem's The House of God, um, and, and Samuel Shem, of course, uh, went on to write Mount Misery and in real life became a psychiatrist, um, you know, in, in The House of God, one of the, the mottos that they come up with is um, always remember the patient is the one with the problem. And that's actually a very helpful adage because it means that uh, you don't have to shoulder the burden. If a patient communicates their distress to you in ways which psychoanalytically would be described as, you know, counter-transference, that you identify with it and that you begin to manifest some of those same emotional responses, uh, you need to recognise that and develop ways of, of managing it. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that because I think it's definitely really important at any stage, whether you be a psychiatrist or just a student, um, to manage your own mental health and, and keep that coping. So it's really good to hear about that. Um, I know we could talk for a while, but I don't want to hold you up too long. So I just want to say a, a massive thank you for taking the time. It was really, really interesting, um, especially regarding forensic psychiatry and to hear about your work. And I think a lot of people have a lot to take away who are definitely interested in that field and, and what it actually looks like. So it's really important to hear what it actually is, I guess. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for, for being here with us today. Hey, well, it's a real pleasure. Um, I should just add as well, I'll, I'll make sure that there's some links if you want. So if you want to get any other information just sort of attached to the podcast, I'm very happy to do that. 